In this class, we're going to begin our discussion of fecal diversions in children. Why are they done? What do we typically see? How do we manage them? In this class, we're going to do an overview, and then we're going to focus specifically on conditions causing um, bowel obstruction. <clears throat> so we'll talk about common reasons for fecal diversions in children, big picture. We'll talk about normal fetal development of the GI tract, and then we'll talk specifically about developmental failures that result in obstructive congenital defects. <clears throat> So the first thing to know, because you think, oh my gosh, a baby, a child having to have an ostomy. So the first thing you want to know, fecal diversions in children are very uncommon. And secondly, if we do have to do a fecal diversion, almost always it's temporary. So it's very uncommon to see a permanent ostomy in a child. Now, common reasons include congenital conditions causing obstruction, acute inflammatory conditions that could result in perforation, and finally, inflammatory bowel disease. So just in follow-up to what we just said, if you look at the two big categories of pathologic conditions that might result in fecal diversion in a child, most of them fall into the obstructive category. So intestinal atresias, volvulus, Hirschsprung's disease or meconium ileus. And then there's a smaller group that fall into the category of inflammatory processes, necrotizing enterocolitis and neonates and inflammatory bowel disease, typically in school age or adolescence. So we're going to back up and talk a little bit about normal development of the GI tract. Um, during fetal development. So during the fifth to eighth week, the bowel is enlarging so rapidly that there's not really room for it in the abdominal cavity. So it actually leaves the abdominal cavity, extends into the umbilical cord. And then during the 10th to 12th week, there's enough room in the abdominal cavity. So the bowel rotates 270 degrees returns to the abdominal cavity and becomes fixed in place. And if all of that occurs normally, the ascending colon will be on the right side, transverse colon, of course, across the uh, midline, and descending and sigmoid on the left. Now, things can go wrong. If there is a failure of abdominal wall closure, you can end up with a baby with gastroschisis or omphalocele. If there's a failure of rotation or a fixation, you can get abnormally mobile sections of the bowel that can result in either intermittent or complete volvulus. So we're going to talk about each of those and what the implications are. We're going to start with gastroschisis. So with gastroschisis, what you have is herniation of loops of bowel through the abdominal wall defect. So here, the abdominal wall failed to close normally. The bowel herniates through that open defect. With gastroschisis, there is no amniotic um, covering, so the exposed bowel is short, 
thick and edematous. And you can see in the illustration on top that bowel doesn't look remotely normal. Now, gastroschisis is more common among premature infants. Most of them, this is an isolated defect. Only um, a small percentage have other defects that might result in mortality. So overall, among infants with gastroschisis, mortality is typically 15 to 30%. The vast majority, this is an isolated defect it's correctable, and the baby is going to recover and be fine, even though it looks terrifying um, at the outset, and certainly to the parents. It's overwhelming and terrifying. How's, how is this ever going to be okay? So how do we make it okay? How do we correct this? Well, treatment typically involves silo. And silo means that you place those loops of bowel in a sterile plastic bag and you elevate the bag above the level of the abdomen so that edema gradually resolves. And once those loops of bowel become normal, so the edema's been eliminated, then you can take the baby to surgery, you can return those loops of bowel to the abdominal cavity and do at least partial closure of the abdominal wall. Diversion is rarely required, so these babies do not typically end up with an ostomy. If wound ostomy nurses are consulted, it's typically for wound care, for management of that abdominal wall defect. What about omphalocele? What's the difference in gastroschisis and omphalocele? Well, again, you have persistence of that abdominal wall defect. The abdominal wall failed to close normally. And abdominal organs like the bowel herniate through that umbilical ring and the abdominal wall defect. But here, the loops of bowel are covered with the amniotic membrane, so the structures are protected, they're kept moist. The bowel is typically normal. You have minimal, if any, edema of the loops of the bowel. So at the outset, looking at the bowel issue, it's like, oh, well, omphalocele um, sounds better than gastroschisis. But unfortunately, 60% of infants with omphalocele um, have other major defects. And because of those other major defects, mortality rates are pretty high, usually 70 to 80%. Now, management's very much like gastroschisis, um, except you don't have to wait for the loops of bowel to um, subside in diameter. Edema's not an issue. So operative repair is done as soon as possible after birth. Again, if we are involved, it's usually for wound care because diversion is typically not required. Now, a fairly common cause of obstruction along the intestinal tract in a neonate are intestinal atresias. And atresia means loss of continuity. It's thought to be the result of a vascular accident in utero, and atresias can actually occur anywhere along the intestinal tract, all the way from the esophagus through the colon. Now, you can get 
variable severity. It can range from stenosis, like you see on the bottom left, where you have an acute narrowing that makes it very difficult for anything to pass through. But it also can be a complete separation, which is what you see on the bottom right, where there's complete separation of the two ends of the bowel and the mesentery. Atresia is by far the most common cause of obstruction in the neonatal population. The one good thing about atresias is that they're typically diagnosed very promptly, frequently diagnosed even before birth. If not, they're diagnosed soon after birth because the obstruction causes feeding intolerance. So quickly identified so that intervention can be initiated. There's no way to fix an atresia except to remove that section of bowel and do an end-to-end -end anastomosis. Now I want you to look at the illustration on top. When you look at the section of bowel just distal to the stomach, that looks like the abnormal section because it's very dilated. But actually that dilatation is the result of the atresia, which is just distal to that section. So if you look carefully, you'll see that just distal to the dilated area is an area that's acutely stenotic. So when you have an atresia, either total separation of the two ends of the bowel or stenosis, then nothing's going through. Everything proximal to that point dilates. So when they go in surgically, what they have to do is they have to take out the acutely dilated segment, and then they have to connect the two good ends. Most of the time, atresias involve a relatively small section of bowel. So typically, you can remove the dilated section, connect the two good ends, and you have minimal, if any, residual pathology. Normally, bowel function is okay once you remove the dilated section and restore continuity. But what if you had a fairly distal atresia? What if there was a little bit of delay in the diagnosis? And what if you had a very large section of bowel that was very dilated and had to be removed? Remember that you need at least 100 centimeters of functional small bowel to prevent TPN dependence, to prevent short bowel syndrome. So the surgeon's always very aware of that. Okay, how much do we need to preserve? Most of the time, not an issue. They're able to remove the dilated section, do an end-to-end -end anastomosis, restore intestinal continuity, restore normal bowel function, we don't get involved. The exception is esophageal atresia. So I want you to look at the illustration at the mid portion of your slide and to the far left. So if you have esophageal atresia, now you have either a stenosed or totally discontinuous area of the esophagus. And most of the time, they're not going to be able to pull the two functional ends of the esophagus together. There's not enough tissue and not enough mobility. 
So many times they require a temporary esophagostomy where they go in there, they connect the proximal end of the esophagus to the neck. And then saliva drains out through that opening. Anything the baby drinks goes out through that opening. So that esophagostomy does need to be pouched. Once the baby's big enough and stable enough, they will come back and do esophageal reconstruction. Typically, they use a section of colon. They pull it up to reconstruct the esophagus. In the meantime, our role involves management of this esophagostomy, also known as a spit fistula. So esophageal atresia does involve an ostomy, and we will be involved in care of that infant. Okay, so moving on from um, esophageal or small bowel atresias, on the other end, you can have anorectal malformations also known as imperforate anus. Now, this is relatively uncommon. It occurs in about one out of 5,000 live births. So uncommon, but not rare. Um, it's more common in boys. 50% of infants with imperforate anus have some kind of associated defect. So there's a group of defects known as the bacterial syndrome, where you have vertebral, anal, cardiac, tracheal, esophageal, renal, and limb anomalies. So if you have a baby with bacterial syndrome, there's a lot going on. You can see the parents would be totally overwhelmed. They would need a lot of support. Looking specifically at anal rectal malformations, they are classified as either low defects or high defects. And that classification has significant implications in terms of management and in terms of prognosis for continence. You'd much rather see a baby with a low defect. What does that mean? A low defect means that most of the anorectal complex formed. So you have formation of the rectosigmoid. Typically, you have formation of most of the anal canal. The sphincters are intact. So if you look at the slide on bottom or the illustration on bottom, you can see in orange that yes, the rectosigmoid did form normally and the anal canal and sphincters are intact. In contrast, with a high defect, the bowel terminates above the pelvic floor sling, above the puborectalis muscle. The anal sphincter is typically missing, and the prognosis for continence is much poorer in infants with high defects. We'll go through that in more detail. So if you have a low defect, typically, the, as, as we said, the anal canal has formed, sphincters are intact, but either you have an anal opening that's covered over by skin, so there's no visible anus on inspection, or the anal opening is displaced, it's not lined up correctly, it doesn't line up with um, the anal canal. So one of the things they always do right after birth 
is they always assess visually for the anal opening and they'll do an, a rectal temp to see, okay, is there patent anal canal? If there is a low anal rectal malformation, it's pretty simple to correct. If there's misalignment or if there's coverage with skin, they can just remove that covering skin and they can align the anal canal with the anal opening. So it's a minor procedure. Long-term prognosis is excellent because the sphincter's intact. So long-term, you really don't expect this baby to have any problems. That can, you can be very reassuring in talking with the parents. High anal rectal malformations are much more significant. So here, and I want you to look first at the illustration on top, and you can see that either the rectosigmoid ends in a blind pouch, or as you see in the illustration on top, it communicates either with the vagina in girls or with the bladder or urethra in boys. So here you see it communicating with the proximal urethra in a male infant. So this is essentially anorectal atresia. There is failure of the anal canal to form, failure of the anus to form. So now it's like, okay, well, how do we fix this? Well, goal number one is to eliminate the bowel obstruction to restore fecal elimination. So first they'll do a diverting colostomy. That's the first thing. Once we do a diverting colostomy, now the baby can stool normally through the stoma. We can feed the baby and we can plan for reconstructive surgery. Now, the reconstructive procedure that is typically done is known as the Pena procedure because Dr. Pena is the surgeon who developed this. It's also technically known as a posterior sagittal anorectoplasty. It's like, what? So what does that mean? That means they're gonna do a pull-through procedure. So they have to mobilize the proximal bowel, disconnect it from the vagina or from the urethra or the bladder, mobilize it, pull that proximal bowel through the pelvic floor muscle sling because you want support for continence, as much support for continence as you can get. So they can actually identify the site on the pelvic floor where you have the strongest um, collection of muscle fibers, the greatest resistance, and then they pull the bowel through that area and create an anal opening. So if you look at the illustration on bottom, you can see in purple where they have mobilized the bowel, brought it through the pelvic muscle sling, created an anal opening. And then once that heals, they can close the colostomy and then stool will pass all the way through, through that created anal opening. Now they create a narrow opening um, because we do want to support continence long-term. And typically parents have to be taught to dilate um, the anal canal to prevent stenosis and obstruction. Long-term continence may be an issue that's down the road that we may have to really work intensively with that child to establish bowel continence. 
The next condition that can cause an obstruction is volvulus. And we've talked about this in previous classes because volvulus can actually occur in infants, in children, and in adults. And what you have is an abnormally mobile section of bowel that is prone to twisting. And it can twist around the mesentery to cause what they um, denote as a closed loop obstruction. Now, volvulus can be partial and intermittent, um, which is not nearly as bad as if it's acute and complete. So if it's partial and intermittent, you get a partial twist, which causes partial obstruction, distension, cramping pain, possibly nausea and vomiting, but then it resolves. So partial volvulus is intermittent, you can get delay in diagnosis. Once they figure out what's going on, they will resect that abnormally mobile section of intestine, do an end-to-end anastomosis to prevent recurrence. When it's acute and complete, when you get a full twist that cuts off blood flow and also causes an acute obstruction, they get rapid development of ischemia, they're very high risk for perforation. The only good thing you can say is that the clinical picture is so extreme with rapid development of distension, severe pain, the, the baby's crying nonstop, bilious vomiting, that they get to surgery almost immediately. So it's, there's rapid recognition that something is acutely wrong, baby gets taken to surgery, and the condition is corrected. Now, what are they going to do? Ideally, they get the baby to surgery before the bowel perforates. They're able to resect the involved bowel, do an end-to-end anastomosis. No ostomy is required. But if by the time they get to surgery, there's already some degree of perforation and leakage, or if there's extensive um, ischemic disease and they're afraid to put the bowel back together, then they'll remove the involved section, the obstructed segment, and they'll typically bring both ends out to the abdominal wall as a functional colostomy and a distal mucus fistula. Meconium ileus is not common at all. You may never see an infant with meconium ileus, but I'm going to briefly go through this so you know what it is in case you do encounter a child with meconium ileus either in your clinical practice or on the certification exam. Either could happen. So what is it? It's actually not an ileus. It's an intestinal blockage and it's caused by dried meconium. So you get these dry gray pellets of stool that accumulate in the distal ileum in the ascending colon, and they block transit through the bowel, so they cause a blockage. Why would you get this? Um, It's typically seen in infants with cystic fibrosis, and you know that cystic fibrosis involves a genetic mutation that alters transport of sodium chloride and water 
It affects primarily the pulmonary system and the GI system does have effects on the reproductive system as well. But within the GI tract, it causes drying and inspissation of the meconium. So how do these babies present? They're blocked. So they're going to have abdominal distension. They're gonna have vomiting, feeding intolerance. Again, they're gonna be diagnosed quickly because of the feeding intolerance. One of the classic findings in terms of diagnostic studies is this ground glass appearance due to the mixture of meconium and air and the distal ileum and ascending colon. Okay, how do we manage them? Typically medically. So they'll put down a nasogastric or orogastric tube just to decompress the proximal bowel, relieve a lot of the discomfort, start to resolve some of the abdominal distension. Obviously the baby's gonna require IV fluids because right now they can't tolerate oral intake and we have to maintain hydration. Hydration is critical to resolving this issue and antibiotics because they're at risk for perforation. And then typically they'll do hyperosmolar, hyperosmolar enemas and irrigations using mucomist because you know mucomist um, is a surfactant. It pulls water in and breaks up thick secretions in the pulmonary system. You can do the same thing in the gastric and intestinal system. So if we instill mucomist solution through a nasogastric tube, it's gonna get down to the distal small bowel. It's gonna pull water in and have a surfactant effect on those meconium pellets start to break them up. If there's a lot of dried meconium in the ascending colon, then they can feed a catheter in through the rectum and the distal colon and give a hyperosmolar enema to start to break up the meconium in the ascending colon. If they can break up that obstructing meconium, then they can restore um, bowel patency and normal function. So surgery is a last resort. It's done only if the meconium ileus is complicated by perforation, by infection, or if medical management fails. Sometimes they can just go in and do an enterotomy, make a little opening into the bowel wall and instill the hyperosmolar solution, irrigate all that meconium out, and then close the defect. Very occasionally, they'll have to resect the area of bowel with all the inspissated meconium and do a proximal diversion and a distal mucous fistula, which gives them access for repeated irrigations as well as temporary fecal drainage. And then once the problem's resolved, they close the ostomy. Now, children with um, cystic fibrosis are also at risk throughout life for distal, let me see if I can say this, distal intestinal obstructive syndrome, DIOS. So this can occur in older children with cystic fibrosis because again, they have this very thick mucus. They can get very thick stool, especially if they're borderline on fluid intake. 
treatment would be exactly the same. Unfortunately, we don't see much of that at all. Probably the most common cause of obstruction other than atresias is Hirschsprung's disease. What is Hirschsprung's disease? It actually is congenital absence of the ganglion cells in the bowel wall. And of course, the ganglion cells control peristaltic activity, control intestinal motility. If you have a muscle and it's no longer innervated, that muscle does nothing. It just sits there. So essentially, it causes denervation of variable lengths of the colon. So you end up with a functional obstruction, and I want you to look at the illustration on bottom. So you have massive dilatation of the descending colon, and at first glance, you think that's where the problem is. See that very distended section of bowel? No. The affected segment is the rectosigmoid. So look at the rectosigmoid on that illustration. It's collapsed and it has caused massive dilatation of the descending colon. The descending colon is innervated. It's essentially normal and trying to compensate for that obstructed segment of bowel. Now, one thing you need to know about Hirschsprung's, this goes back to neonatal development, is that innervation of the bowel precedes from distal, I mean from proximal to distal. So if you've got a little fairy handing out ganglion cells, it's going to start proximally and proceed distally. So the first portion of the colon to be innervated is the ascending colon. Next, the transverse. Next, the descending. Finally, the sigmoid and the rectum. So if anything interferes with this process, which section is going to be involved. If there's any interference at all, it, the rectum would be the first to lose out on innervation. The sigmoid would be next, then the descending, then the transverse, then the ascending. So that tells you in an infant with Hirschsprung's disease, the rectum and the internal anal sphincter are always involved. And then there's variable lengths of colon involved as well, depending on how extensive the disease process is. So short segment disease means you're dealing with denervation of the rectosigmoid. Long segment disease involves varying lengths of the colon. You can get total colonic aganglionosis, but that is rare and you can very occasionally get total intestinal aganglionosis, but that's extremely rare. You are very unlikely to see that. So short segments by far the most common. Let's talk more about that. So you've got congenital absence of ganglion cells that affects the internal anal sphincter and the rectum and may involve part of the sigmoid colon. What happens is the denervated segment of bowel collapses because nothing's going through there. And then the proximal bowel distends massively because it's trying to push things through, trying to push stool through 
that section that is not working and is collapsed. Now, the problem with short segment Hirschsprung's disease is that sometimes diagnosis is delayed because initially that proximal bowel is typically able to at least partially compensate, push some stool through. So many times the child is diagnosed with severe constipation. Diagnosis usually occurs when this becomes a persistent problem. So my baby is always constipated and it's always severe. And then they do an x-ray and they find a transitional zone of narrowing. So what do we mean by that? Well, if you look at the illustration on top, you can see that the segment of bowel between the very dilated descending colon and the rectosigmoid, it looks kind of like a funnel. That's the transitional zone of narrowing between the proximal innervated bowel and the distal denervated bowel. Um, and then if you have an infant with persistent severe constipation, you do a flat plate x-ray and you see this transitional zone of narrowing, now they're going to do a rectal biopsy. And they're looking to see, are there ganglion cells in the rectal wall? Rectal biopsy is considered the gold standard in terms of diagnosis. Okay, so then how do they manage infants with short segment Hirschsprung's disease, Hirschsprung's involving the rectosigmoid. They're going to start with a proximal um, colostomy. They have to divert the fecal stream in order to decompress that very, very dilated section of bowel. So typically, the ostomy is done within that proximal dilated section, and that means that the stoma is very large. So here you have an infant. You would expect a very small stoma, and instead what do you get? This very large stoma because the bowel is so distended, so dilated. I have had to leave the pediatric hospital, go over to the adult hospital to get a pouch that was big enough to accommodate the ostomy. So it would be critical to prepare the parents to say, this is gonna be huge at first. Now it's going to shrink down, it's gonna end up ever so much smaller than it is now, but I just want you to try to prepare yourself for what it's gonna look like initially. Okay, so first of all, you restore um, bowel function, you restore stool elimination, and you start to decompress that very dilated section of bowel by doing a temporary colostomy. Then you're going to resect the aganglionic section of bowel, the non-functional section of bowel, and you're going to anastomose the functional segment to the very distal rectum, right above the anal canal. And there are several different um, surgical approaches. It's the Swenson, Duhamel, and Suave procedure. And if you end up in pediatrics and you're dealing with a lot of these children, yes, you need to know those. But if not, you just need to know that they 
bypass or remove the ganglionic bowel and connect the functional innervated bowel right above the anal canal. Okay. Then once everything heals, they close the colostomy. Now, right after closure of the colostomy, frequent stooling is very common. Um, so you have to protect the perianal skin with moisture barrier products. You have connected the bowel right at the anorectal junction. You're gonna get scar tissue that could cause strictures. So many times the parents have to be taught dilatation of the anastomotic line to prevent stricture. We will work with the parents to assure that the infant and the child is getting enough fiber to produce soft form stool because we're already trying to set this child up for continence down the road. We know that there are things they're going to have to overcome. The internal anal sphincter is never going to be innervated. So it's not going to respond normally. Normally rectal distension prompts relaxation of the internal sphincter. No, you're not gonna get that. The internal sphincter is going to be closed. So the child is going to have to learn to use Valsalva to override the internal sphincter and to push stool into and through the anal canal. And we need to tell the parents up front, it may take longer to toilet train this child because the proximal or the internal sphincter does not work normally. What about long segment Hirschsprungs? Um, this is where most or all of the colon is aganglionic. The one good thing is this will be diagnosed promptly because the baby's gonna have feeding intolerance. He's not, he or she will not pass meconium and will have will not tolerate feeds, is going to be distended and vomiting. So most of the time, they get diagnosed within days of birth. That means that the bowel has not yet had a chance to dilate, so typically they can do surgical intervention and one procedure. They can remove the aganglionic section of bowel, connect ganglionic to just above the anal canal. Now, one thing you need to know about Hirschsprung's disease or potential long-term complications, there's two of them that we want you to know about, enterocolitis and incontinence. Now, enterocolitis is just what it says, an infection involving the small bowel or the large bowel. You would think that the infant would only be at risk for enterocolitis when they had that very dilated section of bowel that once surgery had been done, that that risk would be gone, but that's not true. They can actually develop enterocolitis prior to or following surgical management for reasons I don't understand. I've never read a good explanation for that, but it's consistently documented, so that's what you need to know. What are the signs and symptoms of enterocolitis? Well, typically they're running fever, they're very lethargic, they have foul-smelling, dark green or gray stool. It can be explosive, their belly's distended, so they look sick, 
and they're having foul-smelling diarrhea. So we tell parents, if your child looks sick and has diarrhea, don't delay, don't wait it out, bring him in, bring her in. We'd much rather find that, oh, it was just a viral gastroenteritis than miss an infectious diarrhea. So your baby looks sick and they're having diarrhea, bring them in. The other complication is incontinence. Um, remember that the internal anal sphincter is not innervated, will not behave normally. To try to prevent long-term complications, we want to make sure that the anorectal junction does not become stenotic or strictured, so it may be very important to teach the parents those dilatations and to help them understand how important it is. Adequate fiber intake, balancing fiber and fluid, establishing soft form stool will be essential. We're gonna have to teach this young child to bear down and to use that bearing down maneuver to push stool through because their internal sphincter does not open. So in summary, fecal diversions in children are very uncommon. If they have to be done, they're almost always temporary. Most of them are due to congenital conditions causing obstruction. Atresia is the most common obstructive condition, does not typically result in an ostomy unless it occurs at the level of the esophagus or at the level of the distal colon and rectum, which is also known as an anorectal malformation or imperforate anus. Volvulus involves a twisting of the bowel when it's abnormally mobile. Meconium ileus involves dried, inspissated meconium that causes a functional obstruction, typically in children with cystic fibrosis and Hirschsprung's disease involves absence of ganglion cells and a section of denervated bowel. Most of those will require surgical intervention. Some of them will require at least a temporary ostomy. Thank you.